G'day, as you say in this country, I'm learning. G'day, mate, with a hard T. Nah, just kidding. G'day, mate, how you going? Uh, hi, my name's John. If you don't know me, I was not born in Australia, uh, contrary to what you're convinced of right now. I was born in America. Uh, lived here for about five years now, though. So if you don't know me, uh, let's hang out sometime and say good day. Um, but yeah, I am so thankful to get to share tonight. So um, yeah, just want to say thanks to Mark. There you are. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and just, yeah, thanks for all of you guys letting me come and share. And got a share about a month ago or so on uh, the sixth chapter of Romans. And uh, I had fun with that. And, and it was a good time, hopefully, for you too. Um, cool. Well, last time I got to share, I started the night off reading an obscure passage from a prophetic uh, book um, of apocalyptic literature, as the Bible people call it. And I thought, man, I should do that again. So uh, if you have your Bible with you, go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is after... uh, Lamentations, so it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, if you're trying to find it. But uh, old mate Ezekiel, as you guys say here, uh, Ezekiel was praying one day. He's out, and he's just looking out over this valley, and he just, boom, the sky's open, and he sees this hectic vision. Um, and so if we were to read all of chapter 1, he, he sees like this, uh, just this crazy storm come up from, from the, the horizon, and it, and it comes out, and he sees like lightning flashing and, and all this stuff, and, and he sees uh, these like giant chariots come down, and he sees these, these creatures that come out, and one's got a face like a human, and one's got a face like an ox, and he says, they're the four living creatures, and he sees this, this mighty, mighty picture of heaven. Um, and what it causes him to do is to fall down. So if you look at chapter 1, uh, verse 28, um, it's, it's kind of the last bit of 28, but he says this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh, or the Lord, um, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then right away, it goes into chapter 2, but he says, He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So, uh, what's going on here? Well, he sees this insane vision, and it's just too much for him. He falls face down, and he can't handle it. And then he hears God speak to him, and he says, Hey, get up, and I'm going to speak to you. But how does he get up? Well, it says the Spirit comes into him and lifts him up. 
And so what God tells him to do, he actually gives his spirit to him to enable him to do it. And the rest of the book goes on, and it's this amazing thing. But why am I sharing this? Why am I sharing this? Well, I heard this cool thing today that uh, archaeologists, they've, they've been able to find a lot of stuff in the last 200 years or so. And, and uh, theologians, we've been able to um, piece together more and more of a narrative and an idea of what the early Jewish rabbis were like. So this is maybe 100 years or so before Jesus and 200 B.C. and all that stuff. And, um, and what people have found is that Jews and, and rabbis, when they prayed, they would actually pray this passage. And they would try to visualize God. And they would try to visualize what Ezekiel would be visioning. And, and they say, okay, wow, he's, he's amazing like this. And they use their imagination and they try to picture it. And then and then they would picture themselves in Ezekiel's shoes, and they would, and they would kind of picture themselves falling down, and they would picture the, the Lord come to them. And uh, one guy I was listening to, he, he's, uh, he had this really interesting idea, but um, Paul, right, who, who wrote this amazing book that we're going to go through tonight, Romans, but um, before we knew him as, as Paul, he was going by this first name, Saul. And Saul was not a believer in Jesus, right? He was actually a persecutor of Jesus and Jesus' people. And um, he gets charged, he gets empowered by his people um, with documents saying, hey, if you find anyone belonging to the way of Jesus, you can bring them to the court and we're going to get them in trouble. Well, uh, and, like, we need to stop this. We need to put it down. And so Paul becomes a religious zealot, basically. And he is using uh, force. He's using physical power and might to, to try to stop this thing. And so we see this story in the ninth chapter of Acts where he's, he's on this way. He's on the road to Damascus, and he's riding on his donkey. And, uh, and what happens? Well, this great light comes in and hits him down. And, and what a theologian kind of posited, what he suggested is, well, Paul is a Jewish rabbi. And so what if he was praying like this Ezekiel passage? And he's kind of just doing this daily kind of spiritual practice of thinking, okay, okay, the Lord, Ezekiel, like the Lord is mighty. And he just, you can't even see him, but you can see kind of his holy entourage of mighty angels and all these things. And so maybe he's trying to picture that and and he's imagining all that, and he's going, 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 and then he's trying to imagine, okay, I'd be so stricken with fear, I would fall down. And what this guy said is, man, what if he was that point in his prayer, and that's when this great light from heaven comes in? And when he looks up, it's not imagination anymore, but it's, it's actually the risen Jesus saying, hey, what are you doing, man? Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I wanted to start like this because um, I think sometimes we get really familiar with Paul. If, if you've grown up in church or if you've read the Bible a bit, and like, yeah, this guy's awesome. But um, man, like, what was he like before he knew Jesus? And, and who is this guy that, who says things like, I am what I am because of the grace of God? Like, this man who is very gracious and all these things, but 
would you like him if you met him before he knew Jesus? Like, would, I wonder what he'd be like. And, um, and I have this great honor to, to go through um, three chapters of, of text and of writing that he pinned down. Well, he told some guy to pin down. Um, Tertius. Uh, anyway, Bible joke. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, there'll be some better jokes tonight, I swear. Hopefully. Uh, but yeah, could you imagine the heavens opening and you see God high and mighty in all of his power and glory? And could you imagine that God coming, but he comes in the form of a baby and a tiny child, and he doesn't come with armies and swords and chariots of fire, but he actually comes with with grace and healing in his words and, and all that stuff. And he comes to his enemies that are persecuting him, and he says, why, why are you doing this? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, well, Saul, he encountered grace. He encountered grace, and it changed everything. And and um, why I'm talking so much about this is because I hope that we get to encounter the same grace. I think the, the invitation, the, the good news of Jesus, is an invitation of grace to experience that risen Christ who, who doesn't come the way that we think he might, who doesn't come with the sword and the hammer all the time, but, but actually when he comes, he receives the sword and the hammer. Cool? So that was my little intro, and now we're going to change it up a bit. So would you mind just doing like a little shoulder shake and maybe look to the person beside you and say, hey, you're cute. (laughs) Wes? Did you say it, Wes? Said it, Wes? Cool, cool. All right, all right, all right. So here's my plan for the night. Last time, I went a little bit longer than I should have, so I'm sorry. Tonight, I'll try to bring it back a bit. But we do kind of have a bit of a mission before us, and here's my job. I'm trying to take us through chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. And these chapters are full of big topics. Um, He kind of jumps around a lot. Um, Some things uh, are pretty relevant today. Some things are like, man, I don't get this. Like, this means nothing to me. And some things are quite controversial. Some things are quite boring. It's the Bible. I love it. It's, it's got it all, you know? Um, but I, I believe the best way to read the Bible is um, before you kind of just start jumping into it and trying to figure it all out, the best way is to just read it. Um, it's kind of simple, but uh, you just got to read it. So if you can roll along with this, here's my plan. We just read together chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then I'll try to briefly go through chapter 9, and then I'll try to briefly go through 10 and 11, keyword briefly. Cheers? Cool? All right, so 
I'm going to read from the ESV, and then I asked Amir. Oh, I got the thumbs up. Um, Amir's got the ESV up there, too. So, um, yeah, if you can roll along with this, cool. Uh, sweet. How about, how about we get multiple people to read this? I don't want to just talk, okay? Um, all right, we got a yes over there? Yeah? You want to you wanna start it out, and then when you get bored, you just say pass, and then we'll find someone else? Oh, a gong. Okay. All right, all right, all right. You read it, and then when it's time to switch, I'll... Do the gong. Cool. All right. Yeah? Cool. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Give yourself a clap. That was good. Well done. Call it a night. This is kind of funny. Originally, right, um, Paul wrote this letter. He gave it, gave it to some friends. They walked like thousands of kilometers, maybe sailed on some ships. And then they got to Rome, and they called all the Christians together, and they said, hey, we have a letter from Paul. And someone would get up, and they would just read that whole thing. So, like, if you're ever like, oh, it's too hard, I can't understand. Well, like, their sermon was like that. So, so yeah, it's cool. Um, well, sweet. You guys did great. Can we just do, like, a little shake real quick? So what is this thing saying? Well, Romans 9 isn't the start of the book, right? There's been a lot said before it, and then Romans 11 isn't the end of it as well. So we are taking a chunk of Scripture out of passage, out of context. Um, so briefly, I'll try to be brief, but to briefly give a framework for this, um, there are the, the church of Rome that he's writing to were uh, Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So early, early on, Peter, he gets up to do a sermon, right? And it says 3,000 people were saved that day. And in that, it has this big list of all these different visitors that were there. And in it, it says there was visitors from Rome. So you could read that in Acts chapter 2 if you wanted. Um, but what scholars think is that this church wasn't started by an apostle, but that these people heard the gospel from Peter, and they had their Jewish roots and their Jewish understanding, and so they went and they were trying to piece these things together. But no apostle was really there to really kind of iron out these ideas and these things. And from within the book of Romans, we can read uh, clues that Paul has never been to them. So he says in chapter 1, he says, man, I, I really wanted to make it to you guys. I've been trying, but I've been held back. So somehow he has connections to these people there. And, and if we went further on into the book, in chapter 16, he actually gives this big list of names. And he's like, hey, tell um, Phoebe I say hello. And then he'll like, tell this person I say hi. Tell this person. And like the whole chapter is just a bunch of names, basically. Um, 
And what people think is that that's actually kind of like um, you've applied for a job, probably, and when you apply for a job, you have to give what? Character references, right? And so people kind of see that as, whoa, um, what if it's like Paul is kind of saying, hey, I know this person in the church. I know this person. I know this person. I know this person. Go and chat with them and ask them what I'm like. Um, So yeah, so Paul, he doesn't full on know these people. He just knows a handful of them. But he feels the authority and he feels like he has the permission to speak into their lives and act as an apostle, as a leader to them. And he believes that's a gift from God that he's received, that he's, um, he's called to do that by God. So he's writing to them, and what we think from the, the text and what we've kind of pieced together is they're probably in disunity. And the big uh, thing that's dividing this church is actually a racial issue. That Jewish Christians, they thought this whole news about Jesus was only for other Jews. And then, so, if, you, if we were to read the book of Acts, you'd see kind of this progression over about 15 years. People are only preaching to Jews. They're like, have you heard the good news? But they're not going to their Gentile neighbor. Paul, however, when Paul meets Jesus, he gets it right away. He's like, whoa, this is actually for everyone. And so when Paul meets Jesus... Uh, you could read the book of Galatians. He says, I, I didn't go and chat with the other apostles. I just started preaching. And so Paul's like, no, this is for all people, not just one race. And then the, the other apostles, so Peter and those guys, the 11, they're, they're getting together and they, they chat. And, and Peter says, hey, I just had this crazy thing happen to me. And you can read about it in Acts chapter um, 10 and 11. Peter He's praying, and he sees this vision from heaven, and basically, God speaks to him and says, hey, this is for Gentiles, and then he sets up this really cool mission for him. He's like, go talk to this person, go talk to this person, and what the result is, is this uh, Roman official guy, he meets Jesus, and his whole family, they meet Jesus, and they actually come into the faith. They get baptized. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They, They speak in tongues, and it's just like Pentecost with the Jews. Um, so what we think is maybe the, the Jewish Christians here, they haven't fully understood that. Um, and something politically happened where uh, there's this big Caesar named uh, Claudius. And Claudius, we don't really know the backstory or anything, but he ended up kicking out all of the Jews from Rome. And uh, so even if they're Christian Jews, they had to leave Rome and... Um, what people think is that while the Jewish church was gone, a Gentile church went in there, and they kind of populated. They're like, we love this Jesus stuff. This is awesome. But then uh, Claudius, he gets ousted, and there's a new Caesar named Nero. And Nero says, all right, Jews, you're allowed back in. And so the Jews, they're allowed to return to Rome, and what do they find? Well, they find they're not the only ones that are believing in this Jesus guy, that there's another group of people believing in Jesus. And, and so there's struggle there. Who's the pastor? Who's on worship this week? Like, who's, uh, who's in charge here? Who do we listen to? 
And so that's, that's my opinion, that's my belief, is that Paul finds out about this church, and he wants to write um, a message to them to hopefully bring them together in unity and hospitality um, to correct this kind of tension that's going on. And so throughout the book of Romans, if you were to read it, um, Paul will jump from kind of speaking to a Jewish audience to a Gentile audience. And do you remember what I said at the start? How would they have heard this? How would they get this letter? Someone stands up, right, and they say, hey, we have a message from Paul. So maybe, if you can think about it, maybe all the Jewish Christians are like over here and they're like huddling together. And maybe all the Gentile Christians are like over here and they're huddling together and they're like, ah, you, you Gentiles. And they're like, ah, you Jews. And, right? And, and so Paul, he'll be like, hey, I'm going to speak to you who know the law. And it's like, okay, that's the Jews. And then he's like, now I'm going to speak to you who, who are uncircumcised, who don't know the law. And, and so Paul will do this. And an example of that, did you catch it in, um, in chapter 11? Look at chapter 11, verse 13. So chapter 11, verse 13, he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So why am I going on about this? Well, that's important context because Paul is unpacking this big argument and this big uh, logical process about um, being Jewish and being a Christian and how, how do we relate to our other Jewish family who aren't Christians? Do we go to the temple and like, they're talking about sacrificing for your sins, but we are like, no, Jesus covered all of our sins. So Try to imagine, like, that's, that's the task of a good Bible reader, a good Bible student, is to try to rid ourselves of our biases and our understanding and try to put ourselves in their shoes 2,000 years ago. And so these are some of the issues that's going on. Say you're a, a Gentile Christian, and uh, you're, you're loving this whole Jesus stuff. You're loving it. But you go to your church, and they're like, yep, yep, it's awesome, but um, we need you to get circumcised. And you're like, whoa, I don't, I'm, mm, mm, I don't know about that. Okay? And bless you if you don't know what circumcision is. Um, but, or uh, imagine you're a Jew, and some of the Gentile boys are like, yo, come over to our our little crib, come over and hang out. And you're like, okay, sweet, I have friends. And you go to, to hang out, and lo and behold, what's on the barbecue? What are they frying up? <sighs> Those swine-eating pig lovers, they're eating pig. And you're like, oh, I don't know about this. See, the gospel, it, it's taking people out of their little tribes and their little clans, and it's saying, hey, Come together and let's recreate, like let's create a new community. Let's, let's take you out of your little things and let's make this family. Um, and so in the, in the ancient world, when, and when this gospel is going out, it, there are awkward situations. There, there are different cultural norms and in, in, uh, boundaries. And, and um, even today, I mean, if you go to Hohidiai, if you go on this trip with Mark, which you should, if you're thinking about it, um, 
you're going to encounter some different uh, cultural differences. Um, it's not okay just to walk in front of people that are talking. It's really, really rude. Like, um, there's so many things. Like if they're eating and food's on the ground, if you step over food, it's like, oh, you are like disgusting. And you're like, what? I'm just walking. But, but they come over here or, or someone comes to the West and maybe they don't wash their hands before they cook food. And you're just like, ah, that's disgusting. And it's like, well, culture. Maybe the second one is a bit of science. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to be brief here. But get, get in that framework of thinking if you can. Of try to, to think about these tensions that would be going on. Cool. That leads us to chapter 9. So what's being said? Um, well... How do our first couple of verses go? May, would you mind putting the first couple ones? So if you could, I don't know if you can do it in one slide, but uh, verses 1 to 5 is actually, uh, if you're looking at the, the whole kind of Bible, this is called a lament. It's a type of uh, literature, and Paul is lamenting. There's actually a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, and it teaches people how to lament, which is really cool. But um, Paul starts lamenting over his uh, family, his people of Israel that do not know Jesus, do not believe in Jesus. And so look at that first, first line. What does he say? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Right before chapter 9, what was there? Not a trick question. What came before chapter 9? Chapter 8. Chapter 8, right? This is this amazing passage, right? But do you remember how the end of chapter 8 goes? It says, um, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, right? Neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation, neither whatever it goes. Maybe I should read it instead of trying to quote it. Um, but the last maybe five or six verses of chapter 8, Paul says, There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing. And then what does he say in chapter 9? I wish I was cut off from Jesus for the sake of my brothers being brought into him. Do you see that? It's pretty powerful. He's like, man, there's nothing that could take you away from the love of Jesus. And then he's going to pause and he's going to be like, but I could wish that I was basically damned, if I was accursed, that I was cut off and damned so that they could be brought in. So here is a key to knowing Paul. He has a heart of love. Like, I don't know if I could say that about my non-believing friends. I don't know if I actually care that much in that way. 
I don't know if I'm like dying and, and heartbroken over my friends and family that, that don't know Christ. And so I, I say that just to say I'm challenged by that. That's, that's, that's a cool thing that, that Paul is like, man, I, I so want them to know. But then look at verse uh, 6. So he, he says that, it's this prayer, it's this lament. He says amen, and then he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he doesn't just get depressed and stay there. He actually combats that with faith. And he's like, man, it sucks, but I have faith that God's not done with him. The word of God hasn't failed. And so from verse 6 to onwards, um, Basically, to the end of chapter 11, he's just going to unpack this idea of what is God doing with Israel? Um, What is he doing with these people who he's made all these promises to? And and I've talked a little bit about context tonight already, but man, you have to read the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. And then in reading the New Testament, it helps you understand the Old Testament. It's this really cool paradox of how it works. But the Old Testament, it's this amazing story that there's this unfolding story of redemption and this narrative that's going on that, that Jesus is, is what the authors say is the culmination of this story. And so Paul, he's, uh, he's convinced that you're meant to know about this story going on and and, um, and throughout this book already in chapter 3 and 4, he's mentioned back to the story. He's, he's talked about the kind of the early guys, so Abraham and Moses. And, and uh, man, I'm going to go so long if I start talking about that. But read the Old Testament. It's not as scary as you think. It's good. It's good. It's good. Um, but uh, Paul is... He's wrestling with this idea of, um, well, has God just abandoned his people? Has he said, all right, enough with you, Israelites. I'm going to go to the Jews. Do you, do you remember Jesus? He, he sends out his uh, disciples, and he says, hey, go to a town and preach the gospel to them. And if they, if they don't like you, do you remember what he told them to do? He says, hey, take your sandal and just shake off the dust and go on to the next one. And so it's like, is God, has God done that to the Jewish people? Is he like, all right, enough with you? And honestly, like, if you read the Old Testament, I think you'd be totally fair and just to do that. Like, we read it, and it's just like, really? Really? Again? No, no, come on. Like, ah, babies? You're sacrificing babies? Ah! You're like, what is going on? And then you look at your own life, and you're like, oh, Really? Um, <clears throat> but um, so Paul he, he's unpacking that and that, that's what's going on in chapter 9 and I don't know how familiar you guys are with like some of these controversies out there or debates on these passages so uh, I don't so much rabbit holes to go down but just show of hands real quick who has heard of uh the name or the the term Calvinism. Okay, who's heard of the name and term Arminianism? Okay, well, 
I'm not going to talk about that stuff tonight. But I'm not doing that just to avoid trouble. I'm doing that because Calvin and Jakob Arminius, they weren't around when Paul was writing these things. And I think so often people, they don't start with this. They don't read this. They hear in a sermon or they hear online this, this controversy. And it's like, ooh, free will or sovereignty. You're like, uh, do you even have free will? And then people, there's all these emotions and there's all this stuff. And, and it actually says in the book of Proverbs, it's a fool who loves contention. And I think sometimes in theology, people just want to debate. It's like, ooh. And I mean, I've been there too. Like, it's like, ooh, what? People are debating over this one Greek word? I want in on it. I want to know. But, um, but the, the context of, of this is Paul isn't just writing a theology of how people are saved. Whereas some people today, they'll write kind of these big books and they'll say, how are people saved? And, and they're talking about free will or sovereignty or they'll use... Uh, analogies of flowers, like a tulip, or all these things. Um, but the context, and this is what I want to talk about, is, is Paul, when he talks about being chosen and being elect, he's talking about the, the family of God. He's talking about Israel. And if we could go back to the very beginning, Abraham was the start of this whole family. And he wasn't a good dude. So hopefully this doesn't shatter your idea of the, the Bible, but the Old Testament isn't just a list of heroes, of people that do it all right, and it's not just something that you're meant to read and try to imitate. It's actually like this story of God who's the hero and who is good, working with a very sinful people. And he goes over and over again, and sometimes people get it right. And sometimes there's sweet things that we can look at and be like, I want to be like that. And you can imitate and you can learn from and glean. But that's not the purpose of the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament wasn't to be like, here's a list of heroes, be like them. I used to read the Old Testament like that. I used to read the Bible like that, but I don't anymore. It's not just try to be like these people. It's actually this beautiful story that we get to find ourselves in. But... Abraham, he just gets called by God. And Abraham, he has a wife, right? And, and we could read his story, but he ends up having a kid, and that kid's named Isaac, right? And Isaac, he ends up having uh, two kids, uh, Jacob and Esau. And then we read on in Genesis about Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob, he has a lot of kids, right? It's like 12 of them. But if God didn't choose Abraham... Do Isaac and Jacob ever live? If, if your grandparents never got together, do you live? And, and so what's interesting is because God loved Abraham and was moving in his life, that's going to affect the whole generation onwards, right? What you do to the seed, uh, it, it affects the rest of the genealogy. It affects the line. And um, what happens is Abraham, he just gets chosen, but God could have chosen anyone else around the time. Like he, it's like, why did you choose Jacob and not Esau? Why, why did you choose? And um, 
what's, what's so cool about this is uh, Paul will actually kind of voice maybe opponents' voices. Maybe people are like, well, why, why would he do that? That seems unfair. And so he'll be like in, um, in verse 19, he'll say, he says, You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Um, so he'll give kind of a voice to maybe these counter ideas that might pop up. And you're like, well, okay, if God's choosing people um, to receive these things, then, then why could you ever punish someone who doesn't receive it? Because God didn't. And, and so Paul's not actually going down that avenue. He's not, he's not trying to um, fully explain and pan out how these things are happening, but he's talking about why, why is God doing what he's doing right now? He's not trying to like philosophize and just sit on a, a, a pillow and eat grapes like the, the Greeks of his time. Um, the Greeks were philosophizing about all these things and had all these crazy ideas, but Paul is, is very practical, and it's just, why is God doing what he's doing right now? <sighs> Sorry, I'm all over the place right now. <laughs> Can everyone just say, we love you, John? Cheers. Love you, too. Cool. All right. Well, Amaya, could you put up um, verse 22, please? So Paul, he puts forth this, this word picture of clay and a potter. And so it's like, oh, the person will say, why does God do all that? And then he responds and he says, will, will the clay yell to the potter, why did you make me like this? And, and it goes on and he, and he says some things like, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So... He's doing this analogy of, all right, what if God's a potter and all of us human are like clay? And what if the potter wants to make some people like this and some people like that? When you read that, you might be like, what the heck? Like, God's just making people to send them to hell? That's what some people kind of attack this idea and, and all these things. And, and I just want to bring your eye to one little word, and it's at the start, and it's if. What if, God? And so it's not, it's not saying God is a potter that did all these things. Why is that important? Well, I think this actually invites the reader in an exercise of humility. Because it, it's not just kind of this like... Uh, dismissal, blind faith thing of like, oh, don't ask too hard questions, just believe. Like, it's not just that, but there is this true place of like, true faith can look in the face of a difficult thing and you attach on to the character and nature of God with trust. And you, and you say, no, no, like, I don't know all the details here, but I'm trusting that, that you're good in this and I don't know it all but I'm, I'm holding on. And people sometimes like to scoff at that today, and they say, oh, you're just stupid Christians, and you, you just believe blindly and all that thing. But 
When you boil stuff down, everything really does come down to faith. Faith is the assurance of things unseen. And I mean, you can't prove that much stuff. You, you have to take people on their word for everything. And that's true in the sciences and all that stuff too. So it comes down to faith. So the better question is, well, what's worth believing? What's worth listening to? Well, Paul says, what if God desired to, to do these things? And I think as a reader, you get invited to say, am I okay with being clay? Or if you're offended by that, you've got to ask yourself, am I trying to be the potter? And I think there is this very humbling exercise to come in and be like, man, am I okay with being clay? I will say this. I got to do a pottery class over in Oldinga a couple weeks ago, and I actually really liked it. Um, they gave them five bucks. They gave me some clay, and I got to play around with it, and it was fun. But not much has actually developed in the whole clay world. Like, think about tools and that stuff. Like, maybe we put an electric motor and we spin that thing, but ancient technology of, like, clay, like, I mean, they had a little foot pedal that would spin that thing, and and humans, we've been making clay pots kind of the same way for like a long time. Like people do get really creative and cool and we can heat it up a lot quicker and all that stuff. But I love the image of, of, of a potter. And if you think about it, so many of the things that we have today, they're not handmade. How are they made? Mass production in, in factories, right? And I just want to bring your attention to this. The Bible says that God is a potter. He's not a press. It's not like a factory press just pumping out little cups. But like a potter who, who has to knead the clay and, and prepare it. And maybe, oh, this one's too hard. I'm going to put some water on it for a few days. And, and I love that picture of God. That... He's not just this factory just pumping out the same identical person, but there's so much room in God's uh, family for, for personality and for individuality that God is a potter, not a press. He's, he's hands-on. So Paul, he has a, a bunch of different uh, things that he goes through in chapter 9. He, he talks about uh, the true descendants of Abraham, and, and um, that's kind of the first 20 verses. Then he talks about this idea of a potter, and he, and he quotes these, uh, these voices from the Old Testament, these, these prophets. Um, but what's the big context? Well, he's saying, okay, is God just saying, all right, enough's enough with Israel? No, God is working with them, and and what do you do with people that are Israelites but aren't receiving their Messiah? What do you do with that? And so he goes on and into, into chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, he, he has another kind of word picture, and it's a, a building idea of when they build, they have the cornerstone. And this is a really uh, popular idea throughout the Bible, a, a famous verse, but it says, Behold... This is verse 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. But Paul says that the Jews that aren't believing, they've actually stumbled 
over this stone because they, they tried to attain it by works and not by faith. So look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Have you ever tried to open a door? You're just really, really going hard on it. And you're like, why isn't this working? And you get so mad at it. And then you look and it says, push. It's like, man, you could have all the zeal in the world. But it's not according to knowledge. And I find it so amazing that oftentimes when, when we see the prayers of the apostles in the New Testament, they're not praying, I pray that God gives you more strength. I pray that God fills you up with these things. If you look at just Ephesians, for example, Paul will say, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And it's like, what if he's actually given you the strength and all that stuff? What if he's already given you the armor of God, but now we need to learn how to use it? So, little side note there. But, uh, so the Jews, they're zealous, like Paul, right? He was zealous. He was killing Christians, but... It was without knowledge. And, um, and that's actually what Paul will say in chapter 1, is he is not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is that bit of knowledge that can realign people and be like, man, this is what saves, this, this good news, good news. And chapter 10 is an amazing chapter, and it's all about good news, that that Christ, look at verse 4, chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you believe? You have righteousness. Do you know that? Do you know that you're righteous? And don't waste away and be like, oh, I'm so, I'm not, on, like, of course you can't reach it. Of course, that's the point. But the gift of God is righteousness. And so the question is, are you just going to let it sit there? Or are you going to open it up and enjoy it? Do you know that you're righteous? Do you know that you're righteous? Uh, Paul, I mean, man, this book is just full of that word righteousness. If you just do a word study on righteousness through Romans, it's a good, good Bible study. But Paul, he's made these big arguments throughout the book that it's not by works, it's not by works, it's not by trying to do all that stuff, it's by receiving through belief. And here in chapter 10, we have a very um, kind of popular and famous passage. So uh, look at verse 9 and 10, chapter 10. So Paul will say this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. could talk about that so much, but a few thoughts. Um, today, if you confess you're a Christian, is there like a lot of persecution? Really? I mean, we, you may get a raised eyebrow, and you may be called some names, you may be called a weirdo, but... Like, are people going to steal your home? Like, are you going to, 
is the government going to put you in jail? Like, do we have that much persecution here in the West? Well, back in Rome, when Paul's writing this, it was a bit of a different story, right? And so it's not just this, like, you, you say a magic prayer and, like, but back then it was confessing was, was so much more. It's like you're putting yourself out there and you're basically putting a target on your head. And, and I just wonder, man, like, today in Christianity, when we share the gospel with people, are we, like Jesus said, he said, when you build a house, don't you first kind of count up your materials? Don't you, don't you kind of count up the cost before you start building? And I just wonder, when we share the good news of Jesus, are we telling people that it, like it, it costs you everything, but you gain everything as well? Would you be willing to die for this? Like, would you be willing for, for everything to be taken? Do you know that it's actually like a pearl out in a field that a man, he saw and was like, this is so amazing. I'm going to sell everything I have so that I can afford it. Like, that's how Jesus talked about the gospel. So how do we talk about it today? Has anyone ever heard of the sinner's prayer? Sinner's prayer? Um. Man, hopefully this doesn't offend you or anything. And if that's how you met Jesus, praise the Lord. But I, I do just want to say quickly, the sinner's prayer, it, it, you can't find it in the New Testament. Like, there's no, like, prayer. But this is probably the most uh, similar thing to, to that type of prayer. Of like, hey, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then, and that's where we kind of get that prayer from. But... I just, I don't know, I kind of fear, and I think it's a bit different in Australia, but at least where I'm from in America, Christianity's kind of just gotten boiled down to, hey, raise your hand, pray this prayer with me, you get your get out of hell free card, and go live your life however you want, but just know that because you prayed that prayer, you're, you're saved eternally, and just go to church on Sundays and try to be nice. But if that's all Christianity gets watered down to and reduced to, like, man, we're missing out so much. Like, it is the pearl of great price. It's, it's worth everything. And so some people, they kind of just run straight to this verse, and it's like, oh, this is all you need. And then it's like, well, oh, cool, that's all I need. I'll never open that book again. And it's like, no, keep reading. It's a really good book. But... um. So I've said kind of that negative stuff, but now I will say positive stuff. It is that simple. It is just belief in your heart and, and just this prayer of faith of like, God, I want you, I need you. And it isn't you have to clean yourself up and get your act together in order to be right before him. It's, no, God got his act right. He came before you and he says, will you have it? Like, it's... That's what righteousness is. You're in right standing. He says, will you, will you open it up like a present? And that's what that prayer is. of like, yes, God, I want that. And so prayer is just this, this chat, this receiving of it. Oh, man, sorry. <laughs> uh, but what's cool about this, too, is remember the context of racial tension. Paul says this is for everyone. And that's really, really common to us. We're, yep, 
all-inclusive, inclusive, and all that stuff. But in the ancient world, that was a very new idea. And, and I just want to say that, like, man, Christianity, it impacted the whole world. And this whole inclusion and acceptance thing, it's not just a worldly idea. Like, that, I think, stole a lot from Christianity of, like, you're one. It's this ecumenical, you're brothers and sisters coming together. Christianity lent a lot to that. So chapter 10 is amazing, uh, and, and Paul is just saying, hey, all are welcome at this table to eat. And chapter 11 goes on to, uh, to just talk about Israel, and hey, did God abandon these people? And um, It talks about grace, and, and um, he has this amazing uh, image of an olive branch and grafting. Has anyone ever worked at a vineyard and grafted a, a plant? Anyone? Yeah? So cool. It's like grafting process, right? You have the, you have the original uh, plant and the, the healthy root thing, and then you take an offshoot of something, and you, you put it so tight, you wind it together, you put it as one, and eventually the natural processes of the plant, they'll, it'll kind of resurrect that dead twig and it'll become one. And I'll end with this. Um, one of my favorite passages was the night before Jesus died. He's having dinner with his buddies, right? And, and he says this, My father is the vine dresser, and you are the branches. Um, my father, he, he's the vine dresser, uh, dresser, and, and I'm the true vine, and every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes, so it'll bear even more fruit. And he says, already, you disciples, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now remain in me as I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. And something that's so sweet is if you look at verse 16 of chapter 11, Paul says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So is Jesus holy? Is Jesus good? And are you in him? See, that's the good news of the gospel, is that we get to be grafted into him. That this dead twig, this, this old dead life that we had got connected and placed inside of a just undiable life. And his life trumps that death. Resurrection life becomes contagious. It spreads and it grows. And so now we get to, with humility, actually say, hey, I am chosen from God. But that choosing, it's not just, hey, I'm better than everyone else. I'm the elect of God. Biblically speaking, when God chooses a minority, he always chooses a minority to bless the majority. So that whole pyramid thing, right? Our kings, our people, they sit up at the top, and it's like, you all work for me, and I'm just going to get all the money. And Jesus comes, and he kind of inverts that, right? And Jesus says, hey, the Son of Man, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life. So, have you ever heard of the Upside Down Kingdom? Upside Down Kingdom? Um, if you haven't, well, 
it's just this idea that Jesus, he, he's a king that's different. He serves from the bottom up rather than top up. And I, I was saying uh, upside down kingdom for a long time, but I've, I've stopped saying that, you know, because Jesus' kingdom is actually the right side up kingdom. It's the world that has an upside down kingdom. And Jesus shows us that true kings are servants, and true servants are kings. And so Romans 9, 10, 11, man, there's so much that we could chat about, and sorry I took three years to go through it, but um, hear this from me. You were chosen not to just go off and hoard your salvation. We encountered the grace and love of Christ in order to recreate that and so that we can encounter and love those around us so that they can meet the grace and love of Christ. That you're not chosen just to sit at the top of the pyramid and be served, but you get chosen to to come underneath people and to love and to wash their feet, wash their dishes, because Jesus, the Christ, Christ, it's not his last name, it means anointed, it means chosen one. Christ is the true chosen one of God. And he didn't come to be served, but to serve. So if you're real into that whole, I'm the elect and I'm the chosen of God, praise the Lord. Put on that helmet of salvation. But I just want to say, you're chosen in order to be a blessing to the many. Amen? Oh, cool. Well, pray with me if you would. Jesus, thanks for grace and peace. (laughs) Um, And Lord, I just love you, and I thank you that when you spoke to the crowds and all those people, you went for like eight hours, so um, it's not as bad as this one hour, Um, but God, thanks for your goodness. Pray that uh, if anything I said tonight was good, that it'd stick, and if anything was bad, I said, may it just burn. In Jesus' name, we love you, God. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.